The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guy, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is John Moser, a self-proclaimed uh, dance dad who uh, does a lot when it comes to trading. I spoke to John, I want to say a month and a half ago or so, a very thoughtful individual. I think this will be a great conversation. John, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? What's, uh, what's your career focused on? And how in the world do you view trading as a side hustle? Okay, thank you, Michael. And I'm really, really honored to be on this program with you. I have followed your work for quite some time. And uh, just I'm just saying this, this is not a paid infomercial for those listening today, but your Twitter spaces offer probably the best content on FinTwit for free and your, as well as your YouTube channel. So I'm really, really happy to be part of the cadre of folks that you have brought in to these spaces. So today I'm going to be talking about the perspective of trading from someone who's been doing it as a side hustle since the 1990s. And just kind of how I got into it and then some lessons learned, because regardless of how you trade, whether you're a scalper, whether you're a day trader, whether you're a buy and hold, whether you're a swing trader, I think that uh, we all pay our dues or our tuition to Wall Street, as I like to say. And so I think there are some things that I've learned over these 25, 27 years that I hope can help you. I'm not going to try to take a boilerplate approach and say, if you trade like this and follow this protocol, then you're going to get the same level of return because that's a waste of time because we all have differing personalities. We have differing approaches in terms of what we like to trade and then our risk tolerances are different. And so I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to share a lot about some of the fallacies with technical analysis being one of them. So I hope this is something that can be very interactive. And as Michael said at the onset, let's let's all share our experience and knowledge, come out with something that we can benefit and make some money from. So that's the approach I'm going to take. So my background, how did I get into this? So it goes back to when I was eight years old. My father, uh, we had a farm. So I grew up on a farm and my dad didn't finish eighth grade. And that is that is the truth. He dropped out of school to take care of his mom when he was about 11 years old. And so I used to do his math for him. So he had this <clears throat> this mason contracting <clears throat> excuse me business. And we would go to these job sites and I would do all the arithmetic for my father. So I'm like nine years old and you're not really supposed to be working at that age, but we didn't care. I did this. But he would always finish the jobs right around 4 p.m. because we had to get back to the farm. And every day during the week, I would turn the AM dial in his pickup truck to Business 1060 out of Philadelphia. Why? Because they announced the Dow Jones Industrial Average closing point value every day 
at four o'clock. And I, as a nine year old, I'm like, this is really cool, dad. Like every day this number changes, except it doesn't change on the weekend. And what is a Dow Jones? And my dad was like, I think it's something with the stock market, right? So this is how you got information in 1975 at 4 p.m. And this is how the announcer would sound. He'd say, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed today up 11 points at 871. There were 21 advancers and nine decliners on the big board. Boom, that's it. You didn't even get the S&P or the NASDAQ. So that was the extent of my like, what's that? So then when I was a teenager, I took a class on trading and I found that interesting. But then it wasn't until the early 90s or mid 90s that I opened an account with Smith Barney and started to try to do this on my own. And if those of you who did that back in the day know how expensive it was, if you traded 500 shares and you bought and sold, your round trip cost was, from what I remember, sometimes around $200. So you didn't do a lot of scalping back then or day trading. So that's how I got into this. But my career path since graduating undergrad and then doing my master's in economics and business at Hopkins has been on the money side of the biotech industry. So I've been in biotech for over 30 years, but again, I'm not smart enough to be the scientist coming up with the molecule. I was always on the business end of things. And so for the last eight years, I've been with a Fortune 500 biotech or valued at about 130 billion. And I oversee some budgets in the nine figure range. So I kind of help them in that regard. So I always have my finger on the pulse of macro and microeconomic trends. But again, as Michael said, I've been doing this side hustle of trading uh, for a long time. I've traded through a lot of interesting times. So that's what I want to get into today. And so I'll turn it back over to you, Michael, if you want to sort of tee up some of Yeah. So, so I'm curious, do you, um, do you often trade biotech companies or, or have the temptation to do so because you're in the industry? No. And that's uh, one of the things I'm going to get into is I only trade two things. That's it. Week in, week out, month in, month out, and uh, year in and year out. And this is one of those anomalies. And again, as I said at the onset, you you can't really boilerplate your trading approach and then hand it off to somebody else and say, if you just do this, because some people would say that's insane. There's over 7,000 ticker symbols between ETFs, ETNs, and I'm not talking about pink sheets either, that you could be trading and you only trade two securities. That's it. That's it. So I kind of took the approach of a specialist on Wall Street. So some of the New York Stock Exchange specialists, they only trade one stock, sometimes for months and sometimes for years. And I think the uh, some of the NASDAQ specialists are just maybe two. And over time, you become almost symbiotically connected to this thing because, um, again, for me, I only trade two securities. And so I kind of know their ebb and flow. I know there's a trend that they have that I don't have time to spend to dissect 15 different companies and their earnings reports and what their CEO is doing. I have a friend of mine, he trades over 20 stocks at any one time. And I always ask him, how do you track all that data? How do you make decisions with 20 companies that are doing all these different things? He's like, well, you know, I, I don't know. I just take you know, I wing it. Sometimes they go up, sometimes they go down. That's kind of that is approach, right? So for me, it's just easier to do that because I don't have to spend a lot of time with those two securities because I know them so well. I've been trading them for years. Yeah, and actually that 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 time management part is really critical, right? Because you've got your day job. I mean, you've got right, you can't be right. focusing on, you know, you, you can't be a master at all domains. And if you're going to try to master a domain, you better master it in a very specialized way if you're still doing other things during the day. And uh, and I'll just share what those two things are. I trade Dow futures long and short, and I don't do that very often. I would say in a given year, I might, might make 10 trades of Dow futures. However, the other two, which is SPY long and short, 
So there's really just two things. I'm going long and short on those two things. And so I'm going to just uh, share a couple of things because you've been talking about this for a while, Michael. And I think a lot of people on FinTwit are finally starting to figure it out about when you talk about conditions. You know, you're not one of these people that say, well, the Dow is going to be this and the SPY is going to be 3,400. You don't do this. You don't come up with these predictions of point values and prices. You just say, I think conditions are going to be favorable for a meltup. Conditions are going to be favorable for volatility. The conditions approach, I think, is what a lot of people miss. So I'm going to use a, a weather analogy because when I went off to college and undergrad, I had this ambition of being a meteorologist. I thought that because I loved weather as a kid growing up in a farm. We used weather to make a lot of our decisions, right, from, from when if we're going to cut the corn today or the soybeans or whatever, you know, the weather was our guide. So I went off to college to, to become a meteorologist, and after a year – I said, this isn't going to probably be a lucrative career because meteorologists, A, don't make much money unless they get on TV. And the, the few that make it to that are just a percent or so of the graduates in meteorology. So I switched to biology at the advice of a, a college, um, one of these uh, like the people that kind of shepherd you when you're, when you're a freshman and uh, switched to biology, which I'm glad I did, and then went into biotech. But Here's the thing where I'm talking about conditions. So for the last 30 years, one of my hobbies is storm chasing. I go out in the Midwest with a team and we get our cameras and our video gear and we chase severe thunderstorms with the hope of getting footage of tornadoes. I've been doing this over 30 years now. And I've had some pretty, pretty amazing uh, vistas. I've been in front of tornadoes as they're moving through towns, taking pictures of them and whatnot. But the point is, is that when you think about the Midwest and how big it is, if the National Weather Service says there's going to be a chance of severe weather near Dodge City, well, you have to know what the conditions are in the atmosphere to plant your vehicle in the right area where those storms are going to form later in the afternoon. So those conditions being moisture vectors and wind shear in the atmosphere and helicity indexes. And so all this data, you're looking at this data saying, I think we should go to this particular area and sit. That's where the storms are going to go up. Then once the storms go up, you have to figure out which ones are going to rotate and produce a tornado. Conditions. It's all conditions-based. And then once the storm actually forms and it looks like it's rotating on radar and it puts the tornado down, you're in the right place at the right time. Does that happen on every storm chase? No, but I've had years where I've seen seven or eight tornadoes in a single season. So it comes back to what you've been talking about. The same works in trading. What's the conditions coming together to give a possible melt-up, a possible volatility event, or a possible sell-off? And I think a lot of people on FinTwit are all about trying to predict where SPY is going to be tomorrow by some Fibonacci retracement or some Elliott wave count or this or that. And they're not looking at the conditions. What's more dangerous, chasing <laughs> chasing tornadoes or chasing the stock market? Well, it depends what, you know, <laughs> actually, you know... I, Really, believe it or not, I mean, storm chasing is actually pretty safe. I mean, because most of the people I chase with, they have PhDs in meteorology. There's a lot of protocol to that. I mean, we don't just, it's not like the movie where you hop in a car and you just chase after something. No, it, it, there's a lot of science to it. But it is all about conditions. It's all about putting yourself in the right conditions, the right part of the storm so that you don't get plowed over. And it's the same in the markets, right? It's like, what's your risk tolerance? And are you setting yourself up for failure because you're so myopic with your technical analysis that you're not seeing the conditions because you're assuming that it's an inverse head and shoulders, so it's going to go up? It's bullish. Look, my inverse, look, it's, we're above the 200 DMA and look, it's an inverse head and shoulders, so therefore it's going up. And they could be by that bias that you already have, you're now setting yourself up to be blind. You're setting yourself up to be blinded from the conditions that are going to say, you know what? That inverse head and shoulders is going to fail. 
probably the probability of it failing is high because from, and I'm just using anecdotal data. I don't have empirical data to say what I'm about to say, but just from 27 years of trading, I would say on average, and I'd like to hear your opinion, Mike, one is technical analysis patterns fail 30 to 40% of the time. That, that's been my experience, whether it's a falling wedge or whether it's an ascending wedge or it's whatever it is, or it's an island reversal pattern or a diamond pattern, they fail. What, what is your thoughts on that as far as failure? of? I think, it's, I think it's way, way higher than that. Higher? Yeah, no, I think it's way higher than that. So first of all, p- people get, the, I think they get tripped up in the distinction between the pattern and the why of the pattern, which is mainly just because of beta. So I've done all kinds of different back tests on broad market averages using chart patterns and individual components within those averages. And it's the, it's the same finding. If it doesn't work on the average, it doesn't work on the individual stock. And the, the problem is that most people refuse to accept that that's the truth because they actually don't back test themselves and they don't understand, like in the scientific field, type one and type two errors does mm-hmm. apply mm-hmm. over to to strategy development and to signals, right? So, and often I also find that, you know, a lot of these technical analysis patterns, they're, they're a lot more subjective than people think. Exactly. <laughs> That's well said. So I'm going to go back to the weather analogy. So I'll never forget this. This was uh, many years ago. The, the, there's, a, there's a thing called the severe, it's called the SSSL. It's the Severe Storms Lab. It's in Norman, Oklahoma. This is the people that put out all the predictions during tornado season of where they're likely to occur on any given day. And so those reports come out at certain time intervals throughout the day. So on this particular time frame, they were predicting what's called a, a high evolution event where it's a PDS, which is a potential dangerous situation. That means all the conditions were coming together. And it was near Austin, Texas, that would produce probably EF4 to EF5 tornadoes, which are the strongest, right? So they, the, the, the data was overwhelming, the probability. When they put a PDS out, that's rare. It's rare for them to put out a potentially dangerous situation bulletin. So they were so certain that these were going to form in Austin. I drove 1,900 miles the day before down to Austin because the reports come out usually 48 hours before the event. So the morning of the event. I'm in Austin. The PDS bulletins are still saying today is going to be a potentially dangerous situation, a high probability of long track tornadoes. The only thing that happened in Austin that day was a rainbow and a little light rain shower. So all the conditions were there, but for some reason, whatever it was, never could figure out whether nature didn't cooperate. We didn't have squat. I've also seen it on the other side of the coin where we've you know, the conditions were not favorable for a severe event. And we had an EF4 track for 45 minutes. So my point is the same works in the markets. And I think some people, you know, who, and I've seen people attack you on this. It's like, they think that, you know, everyone's an Oracle and they can just put all these conditions together, whether it's yields on bonds or whether it's currency fluctuations or whether it's, uh, you know, the liquidity from the Fed, everybody's saying they dumped 300 billion in, in, of, of liquidity after the SVP, which is not the case. And you're trying to explain this to people, and they're arguing. I just saw it on YouTube. If 300 billion was pumped into the market by the Fed, no, it was not. It's not the same thing as what happened in LA. But people, again, you get into these arguments, and people just say, "But I saw this, and I saw that," and, like, and they they just don't look at the data. They don't really themselves go out and data mine and make those decisions. You know, make those uh, come up with those. Uh, answers themselves they just look for these little data points and pull them out of thin air and then they're telling you that you don't know what you're talking about <laughs> is that was that kind of what you've run into yeah and and i will say i mean i think this is the danger of charting in general right so the, the mind wants to find a reason to make a decision so 
unless you can codify something, you're going to look at a chart, you're going to find a pattern, you're going to then contextualize the pattern in the context of the news flow. Mm-hmm. And that's going to make you convinced even more that the pattern you're seeing, you're the only one that's seeing, and anybody that doesn't see it is an idiot. And aside from the fact that there's so many things wrong with that way of thinking, it's actually damaging to the individual who's coming up with that conclusion because how can you rely on anything unless you can actually see outside of news flow, outside of the environment, if there's any validity, if there's any consistency to a particular pattern, to a particular signal? Yeah. So with that, I'm going to share a couple of experiences I had in, in my, my trading life. First one was 9-11. So 9-11, I was long. And at that time, I was trading QQQ futures. So this I was trading NASDAQ futures. I'm sorry. Back in since 2001, this, 9-11, don't forget this. That morning, the futures were really high before the attack, obviously. And then all of a sudden, I'm looking at my screen. And I had, at that time, I was using um, what was then TD Waterhouse. It was before the merger when they became TD Ameritrade, which now they're going to be Schwab eventually someday. But uh, everything was just dropping. And I'm like, what the heck's going on? I'm trying to find some event like the futures were up and then they were down a lot. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? And of course, we later found out, right? Once we knew what was going, then of course, the market was shut down for a week. But there was something that came out of Absolutely nowhere. There is no way anyone would have known that was going to happen. And I, and I took quite a hit because by the time the market reopened, which I believe was about a week later, I took I lost about fifty six hundred dollars on that trade because I was long futures, right? And I was, and so, you know, those kinds of things we can't predict. Or I'll never forget May sixth, twenty ten, the flash crash. So that day was pretty mundane. And you know, I was kind of. I think at that day I was just trading spy in and out, in and out, and then all of a sudden. I'm like, what the hell? Everything just starts going down. Like, and it was just, I don't know, if, did you trade that day? Were you on the, in the markets on the, on the 10th? Yeah, the so I'll, I'll, I'll do a quick uh, side story on that, but, but, but continue, because May 6th is actually a really good example of intermarket analysis intraday when it works, but, but continue with that. So we'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. It's it's dropping. So I had a, I believe at that time too, I was long spy. So I'm trying to get rid of my long position, but it's falling so fast. I mean, I, I mean, I can't imagine the pit traders. They must have been going crazy. And there's a great video out there of the pit traders. Just this, just the audio. What was happening? Oh, in the dude, John, you, you take me back, man. That was that was the funniest. That's still on YouTube. That's one of the funniest videos. I love that video. It, it, I'll see if I can post it in the nest, but it's absolutely hilarious. The panic just, in this guy. Just the way the guy is yelling and yelling and yelling is like. But anyway, I, I mean, I I was like, what, I thought maybe the president was assassinated. I thought maybe we got bombed and there was another terrorist attack. So I'm trying to make sense of why is the market falling this like a rock through toilet paper? I mean, there was just no reason for this out of nowhere. And I ended up, I was going, trying to buy, just short it. Sometimes I tried shorting and then I couldn't even get a position filled. 
And, and so then by the time I got a position filled, it started to reverse. Now I'm trying. So I was all over the map. I lost a ton of money that day. I'm just going to be honest. I did because my emotions were just all over the map. I, I, and I couldn't get positions filled fast enough because I'm using TD Ameritrade, right? I'm not using one of these high frequency trading platforms. I don't, you know, they kept crashing. That was the other thing people forget about these, these, like the Robin Hoods and all this, these aren't the greatest platforms. They crash a lot. Fidelity, Fidelity crashes even on good days, like normal days in the market. So yeah, curious on your story on, on May 6th, 2010. So basically after my father passed in 08, I was looking for a job. Same day I got uh, into Cornell, which I'd never actually accepted for an MBA to reset my career. I got a job offer from a family office and it was kind of like a prop trading situation, right? I get a percentage of the profit for managing a portion of this family office's liquid net worth. And the family office had a very long bias. They didn't like shorting, didn't, didn't like to make aggressive directional bets on the downside or vol bets. So, and my competition is tied to profitability, right? Like an mm-hmm. incentive. Mm-hmm. So here comes May 6, 2010. I still have the emails dated and with timestamps. Um, May 6, 2010, I shared at the top of the nest, I was noting and noticing that like around noon, as I recall, and it's in the top of the nest for those that are curious, I shared the actual intraday movement of two tickers, the uh, Dow, I think it was either the Dow or the S&P, and then DTF, one-minute chart. And I remember seeing in May 6, 2010, suddenly like around noontime was utterly collapsing, was down like suddenly four, five, six percent, which in the world of the bond market is like a 1987-style stock market crash. Like it's, that's, that's, that's a, a crash of five, six percent and is like a 15% crash, 20% crash of stocks, but moved two hours before the Dow started responding. And I, I was writing emails and calling frantically with the time difference to Geneva saying, I'm begging you, let me buy out of my puts. I'm begging you, let me short the stock market because I could see that there was Mm -hmm. likely going to be an event because it was moving first credit leads right from that perspective. Mm -hmm. So that day is, is, is kind of seared in my memory because one, they didn't let me do it. And I was right. And that also on a side note is what encouraged me to leave because I wanted to have more than just one client, which was that family office. Now to your point, these extremes in markets happen, and if you're approaching trading from a side hustle perspective and not necessarily watching it second by second like I was at back then, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you're not going to notice that, right? Exactly. So, so the question is, you know, what do you do? Do you respond after the fact? Do you put stops? So talk about it from the standpoint of managing risk when you can have these nasty intraday air pockets while you're still doing your job. Yeah, I mean, a stop loss is is imperative, although on that day it didn't work so well. But that day was probably, I mean, it had to be a five, six sigma event. I mean, I don't know what it was actually defined as. Maybe you do, but I mean, that's rare, right? But you mean, but I'll go back to another one that was somewhat similar was the Brexit vote. So that's in 2016, June. So that one was, I think the market dropped 4% that day. And I did really well that day because, I, first of all, I used stops and I was able to get out and I was able to go short. And it sold off. It wasn't the, the precipitous drop that we had on May 6th, right? So again, stop loss is just is absolutely crucial. And then, you know, setting your risk tolerance with that stop loss. Are you comfortable with 2%, 1%, 3%? What's your comfort level to lose? It's kind of like when you go to Las Vegas and you go to the crap table. I mean, how much do you want to lose? You're there to have fun, okay? So you should have in your head how much money you're willing to lose, to have your fun, right? So that's kind of how I approach it from a side hustle perspective. I'm not going to bet my my house on the fact that the Brexit vote might go this way or that way. I had no idea how that vote was going to go. I mean, the media was saying 
basically what they thought was going to happen. And you could have done a straddle on, on options, right? And maybe hope that it moved really far either way. But the premiums were so high on, on SPY, I'm like, forget the option straddle. You end up losing money on, on that. So to your point, I think, and this is another thing, I think people don't spend the time really doing the math themselves as in the side hustle realm, not like you as a fund manager is, what is my, what am I comfortable losing? Because in events like that are happening, there's there's going to be a violent swing. Another one that was uh, actually, I would say this ranks as the the craziest night of trading that in my 27 years was the night of the Trump Clinton election. Nothing has topped that since. It wasn't, I believe, uh, from a volatility standpoint, it was kind of hard because most of it happened after hours. But for those who remember that night, <laughs> right around. It was around 8 p.m. Eastern. The market just started to just, the the futures market anyway, because the after hours market had already closed, just started to plummet. I mean, I think- It was down like 5% as I recall at some point. Yeah, yeah, 5 to 6%. Dow futures were down, S&P futures, NASDAQ futures, because Trump was showing he was winning. And then, so I was trading as I've been for many years, Dow futures. So I'm like, I went short and it kept falling and falling and falling and falling. I'm like, I'm staying up. I'm not going to sleep tonight because I don't know what's going to happen. So I got out of the trade and just kept watching. I didn't catch the exact bottom. I did not. I didn't even get close. I was probably a percent and a half from the bottom. Then around 2 a.m., it started to go up. And I'm thinking, okay, should I go long? Should I not? I mean, it's 2 in the morning. And then it's like 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning. It's going up. It's going up. It's going up. I'm like, okay, this is another one of those. Okay, everybody was shocked that he won. He wasn't even declared. The, and I guess they, I think they had declared him a winner by then. I mean, what is the president change going to really do to the market overall? Like, in, in, in the grand scheme of things, he doesn't even take office till next year. And even when he does, what changes are going to happen to most of the stocks that are traded on the exchange? Not a whole lot, at least not initially. So I went along. And then I believe that day, the Dow ended up 4%. At the close of that following day, it was up 4%. So I think sometimes when these things happen as a trader and on the side hustle realm, you have to think about the psychology of the people behind this. It's kind of like when a missile attack happens. A missile attack will happen and the, you know, hits the, it hits the AP, hits the CNN analysts, and everyone's, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, we're going to have World War III. And the markets fall, whether it's just futures or if it's trading or if it's during a regular trading session. But you have to remember that that's just how humans react to things like that that are unexpected. And then the markets always recover. And so over the years, I've seen a lot of examples of that where you can really make a great return if you kind of can see ahead of the human psychology piece of it. Well, yeah, the Trump-Hillary election night was was unbelievable. I've never seen anything like that since in terms of the, the U-turn that, that happened over the course of eight hours, maybe. Yeah, I would have loved to see the squiggly lines on Fintwit back then uh, that people were probably drawing to show their targets based on how low stocks would go or how high. It's like, uh, don't get me started on this. Uh, let's go for a question. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. So thank you, uh, Alex, and I really appreciate that question. So this 
leads me to the type of trading I do. And I'm not here to criticize anyone's approach to trading. Um, and people do that on FinTwit all the time. You'll see these people who act like they are holier than thou because they don't day trade. They're just buy and hold. And I have one company or two that I do buy and hold. And I've held those stocks for years and years and years. But my trading, when I and I call it trading, is primarily scalping and swing trading and day trading. That's what I do. So because I'm only doing this as a side hustle, I'm not doing this as a fund manager. I'm not doing this as a professional in terms of I'm not you know, doing this for a firm uh, on Wall Street. Then my time horizon is very short. And I'll give an example of today. So today, the market looked strong yesterday the, and, and how it closed. And so I do most of my trading, I'd say 90% of it after hours. So between 4 p.m. and 8 p.m. in the evening, Eastern time, and uh, 7 a.m. to 9.30 a.m. Eastern time in the morning. I do almost all of it pre-market and, and post-market. And so the market closed strong yesterday. Now, this is all based on probabilities, right? And this is where it gets into, yes, do I use technical analysis? I do, but I don't base every decision on it. I use it as a piece of data to give me a probability. Then I look at some of the more macro issues that are happening that day. What happened in the repo market the night before? Was there anything there that might just show a little, hmm, something's not quite right? What was going on in other markets during the night, such as the Nikkei or in Europe? And so I take all that. And then when we opened this morning, I thought, you know, there's probably just, again, this is based on probability, right? I have no way of knowing if it's going to actually happen, but the probability was above 50, 60% that the SPY was going to probably have a little resistance around $404. That's, again, a probability guess. It doesn't mean it's going to happen, but just based on all the things I was looking at. And so what did I do? So when SPY hit 404 this morning, I bought a, a large block of shares of SPXS, which is a, a ETF that's an inverse to the SP 500. And uh, and so I I think it dropped, went up 15, 20 cents, but that was enough because I had a large block. I got out and I met my, what I call quota for the day. And so now I could have been wrong, right? The spy may have never made it to $404 or it could have hit 404 and just kept going up. But I was, again, just using a probability because of my trading approach. But if it's someone that's going to do a buy and hold and they want to buy a basket of stocks and they're asking, you know, trying to address the question you're talking about, that's a whole different realm because now you're looking at a lot more macro impacts, right? That could be, you know, coming down the pike, not just today, but over the next six to eight or 10 months, right? So again, because I'm only trading short term, I don't necessarily, I care about it because of what I do for a living. Yes. And that's why I follow Michael's work because I kind of need to know how the bond market's working right now because I have to make decisions in my professional, I'll say my, not the stock market trading, but the professional side of me in biotech that if I don't know and understand that, I, I can make some decisions that aren't so profitable for my company. So does that answer your question? But, you know, to come back to your question, if I was going to, and right now I'm considering a real estate purchase, right? I, I own real estate. I'm considering making another one. Now I'm starting to have some second thoughts based on what I'm seeing in the macro climate that you're talking about. And, and as Michael's been talking about on Fintwit, the conditions that are coming, I'm starting to say this might not be the best time to make that acquisition. I may want to wait because, and I'm not an expert in that area. So I have to follow people who are. And that's the other thing I wanted to touch on is, you know, you have to shed your pride. My father taught me this at a very young age. It's like, you don't know everything. He used to say that to me over and over. If there's anything, John, I want you to, to know when, when I'm gone is go through life 
never with the attitude that you know everything because you don't, and always seek out people who do. And so I am not an expert in a lot of these macroeconomic uh, realms, but I follow people who are, or people who've had really good track records. And no one's right 100% of the time, nobody. Larry Summers isn't right all the time. He called the whole uptick in inflation very well, and I have a lot of respect for his work, but is he right all the time? No, he's not, but he's right a lot, right? So I try to follow people who've had great track records. No one's perfect. No one has the crystal ball. No one's an oracle. I mean, even Buffett makes mistakes. And so, for example, last year, so it was December 2021, and I'm having a chat with my brother. My brother is a very successful businessman. He's older than me. And he asked me, John, what's your what's your trading approach for 2022? And at that time, you know, yields were starting to go up, right? And I said to him, based on what I'm seeing, in the inflation uh, realm, I think you should short the SPY, short the S&P 500, just go short. If you don't want, just want to do one trade, just short SPY right now, just and close it at the end of the year, you'll make money and short the 10-year treasury. And that's what I told my brother. I sent a text message to him. I said, those are two trades you have to do next year and you'll make some money. And he would have, he would have made, and I did really well. 2022 is my best year since 98 in a P&L. But again, you have to sort of look at this from what are you good at and what are you not good at? I know what I'm not good at. I'm not good at macroeconomic forecasting. I'm not. And so I don't do it. I just follow people who do it well. And I use that as part in my toolkit. Just like I was saying earlier, I don't just use technical analysis. I don't. I use a lot of things to try to lessen the probability of a trade that's going to go south. It's all about, it's just like weather. It's like you, try, you want to increase the probability that you're going to see a tornado because you just spent hundreds, dozens of hours driving and, and you spent a lot of money and you're out there in the, in the plains of the, of the Midwest. You, you want to get something for all that time. So it's all about improving your probability of seeing a tornado. It's the same thing. I want to improve my prob- probability of a profitable trade. But I'm going to have losers. And you have to know when to cut the losers quickly so that you don't you don't just sink with all those losses. Can, can we riff on that for a bit? Because I think this is this is also um, – it's something you often hear people say. It's like you got to sell your losers fast and let your winners ride. Okay, first of all, those statements are inherently predictions also. That the mm-hmm. loser stays a loser mm-hmm. and the winner stays a winner, right? I mean, it's That statement – the problem I've always had with that statement is it sounds awfully like recency bias. Okay, but, but never mind that. There, there's a bigger um, – thought experiment with, with this, or, which is that how do you know if uh, a losing trade, if you're in it, because it's a different kind of fallacy than the technical analysis fallacy, which is sunk cost fallacy, right? Yeah. You're, you already lost the money. You're, you're, you're staying in it because you put all this effort in there. You shouldn't be thinking in terms of what you've lost because you are where you are. Uh, how much of, of decision-making is purely driven based on you know, that decision of is it sunk cost or is it selling the low if you were sell? <laughs> That's a loaded question. And I'm going to give an answer based on a trade that I did poorly on back in December, which kind of goes along those lines. That was I, I deviated from my two securities and I decided to, to play the natural gas field because natural gas had plummeted from its high of 10 MMBTU, $10 per MMBTU back in August. And I believe in early mid-December, it was down to around $5 MMBTU. So it had been cut in half, right? I know nothing about the natural gas industry. I'm just following it strictly from what I'm reading. And I'm like, hmm, this might, this might be a, you know, the probability should sway me to make money on natural gas. It's already been cut 50%. And, uh, you know, we still have these issues in Europe, you know, they're being squeezed by the the Ukraine war and and Russia's kind of cut off the natural gas supply. So, you know, I'm looking at all that and I'm like, so this should be a low, low risk trade. 
how wrong I was because natural gas went from $5 per MMBTU. Today, it's trading at $2.11 MMBTU. So I was completely wrong with my bias of, well, it's already been cut in half. The geopolitical stuff is still happening. Yada, yada, yada. They've just put this major plant back online in Texas that had been down since last June from the explosion, blah, blah, blah. It's all back online. They're but I was wrong because of what you just said. <laughs> so, so then there's an example where, you know, I put all the, all, connected all the dots, but my, my bias still missed the forest for the trees. And by the way, just everybody here, please make sure you follow uh, John Moser. And uh, both have been very kind to me in the last several months, especially given the kind of bullshit I went through last year. But I'm going to use that kind of old line, but apply it to trading. Uh, what would you tell your younger trading self? Uh, you said you've been in this 25 years doing the side hustle side of it. Um, what's the one thing you'd say to your younger self when it comes to trading? The younger self, and I, and I apply this now, is I trade far less than I used to. I also stopped trading options, and I'm not here to, to, to condemn option trading at all. Some people do really well at it. I have a, a good friend of mine makes a really good money. He does the, the butterfly spreads. He does the all that stuff. I mean, stuff that I don't even understand, and he does really well but I don't, I don't trade options at all. I stopped doing that years and years ago because I didn't like having a time clock uh, up against my back because I have backed away from trading. I don't trade anywhere near as frequently as I used to. But the point is, is I've gotten to be where I'm profitable to the point where it's, it's meeting the needs of my side hustle. In other words, I wouldn't invest the time if I'm not going to get a return from it. And I make less errors than I used to. I understand the macroeconomic climate better than I used to, but you also still have to be up on your game. You can't just slack off and, and not, you know, read through what's happening in, in the in the bond markets, for example, what's happening in the currency markets, what's happening under the hood. I mean, yeah, so the NASDAQ is still going up. It's going up wonderfully, except if you look under the hood, new 52-week highs are falling off a cliff. So that's telling me there's fewer and fewer stocks that are pushing this index up. Well, we've seen this happen. We've played this this movie many times. We've bought the T-shirt. We know eventually it's going to lead to a an exhaustion move and a decline in price. When's that going to happen? I don't know. I can't give a date and time. So do I start scaling in at a certain point to say, okay, I don't know when that date and time is going to be, but you know, I think the probabilities are now it's going to happen in the next several weeks. So do I start taking a small short position now and start adding to it, you know, sort of dollar cost average on the short side. I've done that successfully for years. But again, um, I have a target that I try to hit uh, based on the 250 days we can trade this year. I think that's how many we got in 2023. And so as long as I hit my my profit targets, I'm fine. I can just, you know, I hit one the other day. I said, I think I traded 15 minutes. So I was done. Okay, I have to go back to my other job. So I, I trade far less far, far less than I used to. And, I, and like I said at the onset, I only trade two things. And by doing that, I don't have to spend all that time tracking all these companies and all of their data. And But again, I'm not here to criticize people that do that. Some people have, have the bandwidth. They can do it really well. I, I cannot. Okay. So I'm really just speaking to myself about this. So uh, you're working during the day, you're trading. Um, presumably, you've had a few days, maybe several, and there's nothing wrong with that, obviously, where you have a, a nasty loss mm -hmm. and you have an important meeting coming up, right? And you take that loss and, you know, as much as we can all pretend to be Zen, like it, it affects us emotionally, mm -hmm. right? It does. Uh, so I, I'm curious, I mean, uh, have you had those periods where you're about to do some or, or present or do some major corporate type of situation, in some corporate situation just after having a big loss? And then how do you, how do you separate out that feeling you have from the loss on the trading from the side hustle from, what you have to do 
as a professional in your career? The answer to that question actually is summed up better by another person, but I'll, and I want to call this out. It's Simon Ray. He's got a book called The Tile of Trading. And uh, it's a great book. I think it's a great book. And one of the things he talks about in there, and I think this is really important, and this is what I do now. I didn't do this well years ago, but I do it more now, is that you have to look, you can't connect trades. In other words, if I lose $5,000 on a trade today, yes, that's going to affect me. I have to do something to detox those negative emotions because I'm going into an important meeting or I'm going to have uh, going to my daughter's ballet competition or something like that. And I don't want to bring that negativity with me. I used to do that in the past and I did, but I've learned some techniques to kind of take that away. And one of the things that, that he talks about, uh, Simon does, is you can't connect trades, either whether they're winning trades or losing trades, because they're two different transactions. So you have this losing trade. That doesn't mean your next trade is going to be a loser. And that doesn't. And if you take that attitude, if I got to get my money back, I got to get my money back, that is going to sink you because you're emotionally now at the edge. You're right on the edge and you're trying to fight your own self to get your money back. When these are two different transactions, instead of like maybe taking a time out mentally, do something you really like, have a drink, listen to a good song you love. And I'm a musician too, not as good as you are, but I have a whole home studio. Just go play some music, do something to get your brain reset because you've got to go into an important meeting or you're going to take your daughter to a, to a ballet thing and you, you want to be in a, in a good spirit, a good frame of mind. But it, when it comes to trading, the worst thing to do is to jump on the, on the computer and say, I'm going to get that money back. I'm going to get it back now. I lost that 5,000. I'm getting it back tomorrow. You can't do that. If you do that, you're setting yourself up for failure. You have to disconnect. That was yesterday's trade. What did I learn from it? What am I doing today? What is the landscape showing me today? Maybe I won't even trade today because I'm not seeing anything that's really high probability. And that's the other thing I want to touch on um, in, in the last couple of minutes here. And what I call situational trading. I don't see many people talk about this, but I make probably 60% of my profits from situational trades. So what is a situational trade? I'll give an example of one that happened last week. And I've backtested this one 10 years. I mean, some of these I've backtested even longer. So FOMC announcements. They happen on Wednesday, 2 p.m. Eastern. And then Powell or whoever the chairman is comes out at 2.30 and does his dog and pony show. If you backtest this, 80% of the time, and that is 80%, the S&P will open pre-market the next day the exact opposite of how it closed. So if it closed down red, it will open up. If it closed down if it closed up on the day of the announcements, it will open, it will be down the next day. Happens 80% of the time. Happened this time. So we closed red that day. Next morning, pre-market, we were up. Now it kind of sold off later in the day, but I was out. I, I, I bought UPRO, which goes up with, with the S&P 500. So that's a situational trade. Now you're just kind of going off probability from history, which some people say that's stupid. You know, you're just saying like, based on 10 years of data, it happens 80% of the time, you're going to throw money at that? That's like dartboard. Well, yeah, but these situations occur and reoccur. And there's a lot of patterns that happen in the market that recur every single year. There's another one. Most of you probably seen this. New Year's, the first trade, the first market trading of the new year, I believe it's even over 80%. I'm, I'm talking futures, not when the market actually starts trading uh, you know, on the exchanges at, at, at 9.30. The futures are positive. I believe it's over 85% of the time on the first trading day of the year. Every single year. And you could just 
do that trade and then over 10 years, you're going to be right 85 or 90 percent of the time and you're going to make money. So these situations occur and I've got dozens of them in my archives. And I track these. I put them on calendars. And I'm like, because a lot of this is human behavior that's just repeating. And the human behavior is 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 driving the algorithms. It's, it's buying and selling because the stock market's an auction, right? It's buyers and sellers. So for every buy, there's a sell. And so these behaviors repeat. And if you can track these, you can make a pretty decent amount of money just from situational trading. You're not using technical analysis. You're just saying this situation occurs every year at this time. Another one, uh, quad witch, happens four times a year. Every single quad witch event, you can track these yourself, just back test them. You'll have a, you take SPY, for example, it'll go negative, it'll go negative and positive around a two to three dollar range. 80 percent of the time during quad witch, so you can make money long and short on the same day. All you have to do is pin, see where it's pinning, and then and do that. Now, does it do it all the time? Every single quad witch? Have we had just sell offs on quad witch? Yes, but over eighty percent of the time we've not. So situational trading to me is really a great area to kind of bolster your your uh, trading uh, appetite, I guess I might say uh, repertoire because it's it's worked really well for me. I think yeah. that's a good place to wrap this Twitter space up. Please make sure you follow uh, John Moser, who, again, has been uh, very kind in the way he interacts with me. I always go back to this point. You want to follow good people, not just people that put out tweets with data that you happen to agree with. John, I appreciate you. Your oh, Michael, one last thing. I, I want to close with a quote. And I'm, yeah, I'm, not, do, I'm not doing this to, to in any way to – this is a sincere thing because I have Michael's father's book. Okay, For those who haven't read it, this book was written in 1990. It's a wellspring. It's still applicable today, all the things that his father wrote in his 500-page book. But I love this quote that your dad has in the very beginning of the book. And if you're a trader, you're going to relate to this. It says, perseverance has been the hidden force behind every success story in the history of mankind and will continue to be the source of progress for the remainder of man's life on earth. No matter how bad things get, if you persevere, chances are that you will conquer all adversities and prevail. I think that's a phenomenal quote for those times when you're up against the wall, you had a loss, you feel like you're never going to get ahead of this, you're never going to win. If you persevere, you will. I mean, I could tell you my first five years of trading, I was a loser every year. I was negative, negative, negative. It wasn't until around year six or seven that it started to flatten and then started to, oh, I had a positive year of $1,200 last year. Yay. You know, and so it's it's difficult. This is a hard game. It's a really hard game. But if you persevere, like his dad talks about in that quote, it, it will turn around. It really will. And you'll be you'll be making money. I can tell you from experience. God bless you, John. I appreciate that. All right, thank, thank you. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.